0: Well, welcome, everybody. So glad you guys are here. Getting going. Okay, I thought I was getting waved at. Uh, my name is Greg Brooks. If we have not met, I would love to meet you. Um, I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Outpost Community Church, and that might surprise you, and not just youth pastor, actual pastor. I know. We'll, we'll take a guess as on how old you think I am, ranging between 17 and, and 32. So... Um, Glad you guys are here. Welcome. We've been in a, a little mini-series. We, we've been going through the book of First Corinthians, or the letter to the Corinthians, and uh, we took a pause because we're spending this month talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and so I'm excited to do that. So we played really exciting music because we felt like uh, horror music would be not super helpful, all right? All right, well, we're going to get started, and I'm going to start with prayer, and I'm going to actually be sticking on script for most of this, not my typical wandering around self, which would be helpful, because we have a lot to talk about, because today we're talking about... Uh, divorce, and what does the Bible have to say about that? Okay, so before we begin, let me pray for my own heart and yours, together as a church, and um, and then we'll kick off and get going. Okay, Father, so thankful that we get to be together. Thankful for all the conversation and laughter and the new faces I've been able to meet even this morning. Uh, thank you, God, for uh, bringing these friends here. All of them created in Your image, so they have value. They're worthy of all of our time. And so, God, as we come together and we get in your word, we're talking about something that is a result of the brokenness of this world. It's a result of sin. And like everything that is sin, it's hard to talk about. Uh, not just because it's somebody else's sin, it's because it's ours. And um, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of heartache around it. And so, Lord, I just pray in your love and kindness that you would help us to have open hands and to hear this and to have humility but also to still see your kindness and goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, would you guys turn the gain down on the, uh, or the trim down on my mic? I can hear it echoing and feeding back, just to save everybody. Well, hey, guys, this morning I want to start off with a little bit of a confession, all right? Last week I started our little mini-series talking about marriage and what it is, and when I finished I was exhausted, okay, but I wasn't just exhausted, I was dealing with the weakness that comes with worrying too much about the opinions of man rather than being concerned about being faithful to the task of teaching what God has called me to teach. And this led me to be, uh, as a man, I'm gonna, it's very vulnerable to say this, more sensitive as a man to what maybe you guys thought. Did I do a good job? You know, was it faithful? Did I say what I meant to say? And all these things. And, and so whether I, I communicated it well or not... I'm confessing this to you because I really believe that it's a result of sin in my own heart and life. And uh, it's a result of sin because I wasn't living to please God. I was living to please man. Not that I changed what I said, but my concern was wrong. So, and the man that I was most concerned about pleasing ultimately was not really you. It was ultimately myself. Myself. Now, I share this confession with you, one, so that you guys can be praying for me, that I'd be a faithful man who teaches God's word without concern, lovingly, but without concern, but also because it's a great way to introduce what we need to talk about today as we talk about divorce. You see, the thing about divorce is that we never get there without sin. We never arrive at divorce without sin. Divorce is always a result of sin. Whether, uh, <clears throat> another way to put it is, it's always a result of setting our eyes on the wrong thing, usually on ourselves. okay? Like me taking my gift of teaching and using it to gain the approval of man rather than to help others glorify God, so too when we take the gift of marriage and we make it all about ourselves and what we can gain from it, it always leads to pain. And statistically, half of the time, it can lead to divorce. But today, talking about divorce, this is, It's a sensitive subject. And the challenge of preaching on this topic is that there are so many unique scenarios that don't lend themselves to easy answers. The reality is, many of you in this room are listening to this sermon not simply for theological information, but you'll be listening to hear if I think God thinks that your divorce was acceptable, or whether your parents' remarriage was appropriate, or whether you are free to remarry now that you have divorced. There are many intricate and specific situations that I can't possibly speak to y'all. And these situations require tremendous wisdom because it's not always clear what is the correct counsel. Let me give you some examples. Example of a wife who commits adultery. And she's repentant and she wants to save the marriage. The husband knows that he must forgive, but he wants to file for divorce. Would you grant her that him that right to divorce? Does it make any difference if the wife is a frequently unfaithful? Or how about this? A wife gets a divorce because of marital unfaithfulness. You've determined she has legitimate grounds for that divorce. Is she then free to remarry? What if the husband repents? Is he or only to his ex-wife? And what if she gets remarried? Does that change his obligation? Or how about this? A non-Christian couple get, uh, get a divorce. Later, the man becomes a Christian and realizes the divorce was wrong. Is he obligated to try to win back his non-Christian ex-wife? What if he tries but to reconcile, but his ex-wife is not interested? Is he now free to remarry in the Lord? I could go on and on and on. There are as many scenarios as there are marriages in the world. Do you understand? You don't want to trade places, do you? I don't either, because I am excited about what I want to tell you. The simple thing that we could do... So, What do we do? Typically in the church, what do we do? We we just turn a blind eye and never talk about this. We could do that. Never bring it up. Never talk about it. It's going to hurt people's feelings. You know, what are we going to say anyways? Just pretend it doesn't even happen. Or the hard thing is to take the few biblical principles about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and then try, as God's people, to apply them prayerfully and wisely to a thousand different situations. And whether we like it or not, that's exactly what we're going to try to lay the foundation for this morning as we talk through this. And listen, this is important for all of us. Like I said last week, this subject affects everybody in this room. Whether you've been through a divorce or remarriage or whether it's a brother or sister or it's a family, it's your parents, it's your children, it's a friend, it, it, it affects just about every single person in this room. Sounds like a great thing to talk about then. What does the Bible have to say about it? And so that's what we're going to do today, okay? And we're going to look at it in four different points. And as we do, here's my prayer for you guys, is that you will approach this with open hands. That you leave your hands open to whatever God wants to tell you and show you in his word. And that you will keep those hands open to try to be as faithful as you can to whatever God calls you to. And let me tell you, I know it is hard. So we're going to look at it. First point we're going to look at is this. It'll serve as a way to recap. And it's this, marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman, and God's intention is for marriage to last a lifetime. We talked about that last week. If you've got a Bible, go to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be at verse 1. All right, we're going to do a little bit of like sword drill today. Some of you are excited. If you're like me, you hate that, okay? You hate all those like kids who grew up in the church who just felt they were better than you. Maybe I'm still dealing with my own things, okay? Just being honest. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Hey, it's good that we start here and review this because it sets the tone for the whole thing. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. The crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? he said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Remember that in last week, Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 10. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, let's just start with what's going on here. Well, the Pharisees are trying to lay a trap. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to trap Jesus they're not actually trying to figure out what Jesus has to say. Like many of us, right? We may be listening, but we're not really trying to listen to what God has to say. So they're trying to trap Jesus. Now, whether they, th- you know, the Jews, uh, the Jews all agreed that there are permissions for divorce. Unanimously, they believed that. And the Pharisees believed that there were many reasons that you could do. It. And we are going to see that here in a little bit. But how are they trying to trap Jesus? Why are they trying to trap Jesus? Not exactly sure. Maybe they're trying to trap him and get him in trouble with Herod. Because Herod, who is a ruler of that time, killed Jesus' cousin. Because Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, called out Herod for his divorce and remarriage. Did you know that? And they're saying, let's see what Jesus says. Maybe Herod will kill Jesus. No matter what they're trying to do, they're trying to trap Jesus. And like a good teacher when somebody asks a question, what does he do? He asks a question right back. Right? They ask him, what, and he says, what does Moses say? Well, they answer, Moses allowed a man to get a divorce, or allowed him to divorce his wife. And so they're thinking of Deuteronomy 24. Go ahead and flip to Deuteronomy 24 and hold a finger there. We're not there yet. We will come back to it. So Jesus, he doesn't reject Moses' teaching. You're going to see this. He doesn't reject it. He recasts it. Hear what I'm saying. Jesus is saying, yes, Moses allowed for divorce, but this was a concession to human sin. Certainly not a requirement. The law was making the best of a bad situation is what Jesus is communicating. And then then Jesus takes them back to the very beginning where we talked about. So whereas Deuteronomy gives Moses a concession, in Genesis it gives God's intention what did God intend with marriage right marriage is to be one man and one woman anything else is not what God intended it's not an insult it's just not what God intended it doesn't lead to the life and flourishing that God designed for you as male and female to enjoy in this thing called marriage it's something that God has brought together. He brings them together. to become one flesh. They leave their father and mo- uh, mother, and they hold fast to one another, and it leads to life and flourishing in partnership with God. Man, it, it leads to abundant life. It's wonderful. Okay? So before you see anything else about divorce and remarriage, we have to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. Okay? The Pharisees want to talk about acceptable reasons for divorce. Jesus wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage. They want to talk about when a marriage can be broken, and he wants to talk about why marriages should never be broken. So if all you're hearing are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings. Okay? It's like training for battle by only practicing your retreats. It's not what God intended. And any pursuit of divorce for any reason is a result of hardness of heart. I'm going to talk more about this at the end, our final point, when we talk about how we as a church, pastorally and shepherd, how we want to walk this out. But first and foremost, you've got to feel the weight and sanctity of marriage. Now, let's go to point two, because you're like, hold on a second. You read Mark 10, but what about Matthew 19? Doesn't he give us an exception? Let's go there. So second point is this. Divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. All right. We need to look at several different passages starting with Deuteronomy 24. So if you had a finger there, flip back to it. Or go back in your app, scroll down, and you'll get to it. Deuteronomy 24, look at verses 1 through 4. I'm going to lay some context for what we're talking about here. It says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs uh, out of his house, and so on and so forth. But the thing that I want you to see in there, what does it say? If he finds what? It's Simple word, read it to yourself, read it out loud, somebody say it. Indecency. Okay? The key phrase is something indecent. It's Erwath Dabar. You like my Hebrew? Pretty good. All right. It's a very ambiguous phrase, and the Jews constantly argued over it. Surprise, surprise, right? Uh, the phrase actually shows up in the chapter before. So flip back to Deuteronomy 23. Chapter 12, or chapter uh, 23, verse 12 to 14. I want to read this to you this word shows up again. This is what it says. You shall have a place outside of the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. And the Boy Scouts we call this a cat hole. That's what that is. You dig a little hole, you drop some things in it that don't smell so great, and you cover it right back up. That's what it is, and what does it say? Look, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give uh, uh, give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn from you. So, you can see that irwas dabar means, in general, something repulsive, something indecent. All right, why does this matter? Because it's not a prefi- uh, precise phrase. And because of this ambiguity, two different schools emerged in Jewish culture, all right? On the one side was the more conservative school called the Shammai school. And on the other side was the more liberal school called the Hillel school, all right? And both were known in Jesus' day. Both were known in Jesus' day. They're popular. And there's a book called the Mishnah, which records the oral teachings of the Jews, I know, you're not going to go read it, but I'm just telling you, all right? And this is why it matters. Because in the Mishnah, it says this. The school of Shammai, the conservative school, say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, sexual immorality. For it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. The school of Hillel say, the more liberal school, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it is written, because he had found in her indecency in anything. Think one step shy of no-fault divorce. All right? These, this macaroni tastes awful. You're out. That's, is that not what it says? That's what they believe. Now, here's the thing you need to see. They both refer to the same verse Same words. The Shammai emphasize indecency, and they call it unchastity, sexual immorality. And that is a ground. The Hillel, they emphasize anything, any reason. Name your reason, write a certificate, give it to her. And what we're going to see now, I want you to flip all the way to Matthew 19. Join me. Okay? Matthew 19, New Testament, first, first book in the New Testament, first gospel. We're going to see that Jesus, he is going to side squarely with the more conservative school. Okay? Now, this incident in Matthew 19 is the same incident we read about earlier in Mark that we read about. The Pharisees have come to test Jesus. They specifically ask him about the grounds for divorce and what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 24. But this time, Jesus' words here are a little bit different. Look at verse 9. He says this. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So what he's saying is divorce is not allowed for any reason whatsoever, like the Halal said, but only for marital unfaithfulness, like the Shammai said. How so? Why so? Well, sexual sin breaks the marriage covenant because... Sex is the oath signing of the covenant. It's the two becoming one flesh, all right? It seals the marriage. And so having a sexual experience with someone other than your spouse is like trying to sign on somebody else's dotted line and therefore is a ground for divorce. Now, listen, divorce is still not required, but it is allowed and my last point, we're going to talk about how we at Outpost believe this should be uh, approached as fully devoted followers of Christ. We're going to talk about that. But for now, we need to answer another question. Why in the world does Matthew mention this, but Mark and Luke do not? Do you know that? And Mark doesn't mention it. Luke doesn't mention it, but Matthew does. Why does that happen? Well, there's several arguments and schools of thought. Let me tell you, let me tell you two, Okay. Uh, number one, some people have argued that Matthew's gospel isn't talking about uh, sex during marriage, but sex before marriage, okay, in engagement. You see, in Jewish culture and in, uh, in Judaism, uh, betrothal was legally binding. Once you were engaged, you were legally bound to them. Where do we see that in the gospels? In Matthew chapter 1, between two people. You know who they are? Mary and Joseph, Right? And Mary and Joseph, all right, he comes to find out that she's pregnant. Usually that means that something happened prior to that. And so he says that he's going to divorce her quietly. It says that he is going to divorce her quietly. And so people, some people say, the theory is uh, that um, Matthew, Matthew shows this in Matthew 19, and it's the only place that shows it because in Matthew 1, it's the only place that we see that Joseph is going to divorce her. So they're both in the same book. The con, you know, Reading a good biblical hermeneutics would say, we should pay attention to that. But there's still some problems. So what he's trying to say is maybe it's okay to do it there, but not afterwards. I see that argument. But here's the thing. It may not work. First, the question from the Pharisees revolves around Deuteronomy 24, which is about marriage, not about betrothal. And number two... In Matthew 19, it never explicitly ties the two. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying it never explicitly ties it. So this leads me to think, okay, I could see that happening, but is that convincing? I don't think so. So why in the world is Matthew saying it? Here's what I'm going to say basically. Basically, it's this. We could say that Matthew added something to his story, but isn't it more likely that the other two left something out? okay. I've got some friends who go, ah, I just wish God left that out. But the problem is, it seems to be that God actually said it. That Jesus actually said it. And the other two left it out because there was something in Jewish culture that was assumed. The baseline, most conservative understanding was that sexual uh, immorality was a ground for divorce. And then it goes up from there. The reasons go crazy. You hear what I'm saying? So it's most likely that Matthew said it and the other two assumed it. That's most likely why. But here's what I want to tell you, all right? Regardless, regardless of our so-called permission that we are given, God never promotes it. God never promotes it, guys. Never. In fact, in Malachi 2:16, it says this: for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. The NIV says it like this. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. And another version, which you guys have probably heard, it's more popular, it's from the NASB, it says this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, God of Israel. Regardless of where you land on the exception clause debate, it is clear that God is not for divorce. It is not his best for our marriages, regardless of circumstances. And I've seen many horrifying circumstances. The disciples they pick up on the seriousness of the statement because if you look at verse 10 in chapter 19, what do the disciples say? They go like this, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, the, if the only reason that I can divorce my wife is that she commits adultery, I'm out on marriage. Like, what if she's a bad cook? What if she's not good with kids? What if she, like, like you know, chews loudly? I want out. And if that's the only reason, I ain't going in. Tell me, have you ever heard a more hard-hearted response? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. So, listen to me. Biblical understanding is this those who are fully in with Jesus go all in. And you got to determine are you fully out like the disciples? You've got to cho- choose. We're going to talk more about this again at the last point. I got to move down to the third point because we got to move. Here's the third point, okay? So, we talked about divorce is permissible, but as a result of hardness of heart, it always comes from sin. But you can through sexual morality. So let's go to ver- uh, the third point, and it's this. Divorce is not sin for a believing spouse if an unbelieving spouse pursues it. This one's pretty simple. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 7. Go there with me. Flip in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 7. Go into the right or down if you're in your app. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll start at verse 10. That's where we get this. It says this. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. What he's basically saying is it's not from Jesus' lips, but you should still listen. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. How do you know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? All right, what is going on here? Well, again, there's an argument over words. Like typical Christians, we come to two different conclusions on simple words, okay? So let me show you the two different conclusions. Number one conclusion we see is that people separate the words separate and divorce. So right here when it says separate and then divorce, they see them as two different things. So the traditional Protestant position is uh, like we see in the Westminster Confession held by most evangelicals, is that divorce is permissible on two grounds, on sexual immorality and on desertion. Not divorce, specifically desertion. And in both cases, the marriage covenant is severed. In one case, because a sexual intimacy has taken place with another. And the second case, because the spouse is just plain not there. Now, What does this kind of look like? I had a teacher in high school, a high school teacher, who came home one day. There was a note on the table, and his wife was gone to never come back. Imagine that he's a believer. He comes home, she says, I'm out, she just leaves, right? She deserts him. They would say that, yes, now he has the grounds to divorce her. The believer has the grounds to divorce. That's what this desertion is saying. I do not agree with that. I don't think that's a ground for divorce, and I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Let me tell you why. Go back up to verse 10, and I think it's pretty simple to see that I don't think Paul is separating the word separate and divorce, but he's just showing a well-rounded picture of the same exact thing. You go, man, this seems like, why do I need to know this? It's so important. Trust me, when I'm sitting in the room with you and you're seeking to divorce because of desertion, I will come back to this and say, here's why I will never recommend that you should. It's because of this. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But look, but if she does, she should remain what? Unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So I think clearly what Paul says, when he says not to separate in verse 10, he means divorce. Because in verse 11, he, sa- verse 11, he says that if she does separate, divorce. She should remain unmarried. I mean, you have to get divorced to be unmarried. That's just, it seems to make sense. Do you see what I'm saying here? So basically it's this. What I think that Paul is trying to say is uh, he's trying to put forward and trying to communicate to believers who happen to be married to an unbelieving spouse that they should stick with the marriage because they are a means of grace to that person. They are a loving extension of God's grace and a possibility for salvation to that person. Do you see that? Nowhere in there does it say it's easy unicorns, butterflies, vanilla ice cream. It doesn't say anything about that. It says you are a means of grace, you are an extension of God's love. Now, if the non believer chooses to divorce, says, let it be so, you are at peace. And next week we'll talk about whether or not you have the freedom to remarry in this situation, but that is what it's putting forward. Okay. Are you ready to get to the last point? Some of you are like, yes. So important. Guys, if this bores you, I'm sorry, man. You know, hopefully your wife will forgive you for that. But listen, this is so important. And if there's anything you hear, it's this. With all this discussion about marriage and the permission to divorce it's now time we talk about the fourth point which is this the gospel is our permission to fight for our marriages and to find forgiveness for our mistakes let me read it again because it alone is encouraging the gospel is our permission to fight for our marriages and find forgiveness for our mistakes Here at Outposts, we've rallied around one simple mission, and it's to be and to make fully devoted followers of Christ. And full devotion, we say, is an expectation for everybody. Not just for Greg, because I'm a pastor. For every person who is a Christian, full uh, devotion is an expectation. But we clarify, full devotion does not mean that you're perfect. We are not a perfect church, but we do have a perfect mission and a perfect Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so what we mean by full devotion is that you're fully committed to taking your next faithful step towards Jesus no matter where you are. And where you are is not where your neighbor is and not where I am. But each one of us are called to fully take that next step. And it's hard, but the burden is light because of what Jesus has done. Now, the question is, how did this become our mission And number two, what was my and your mission before this became our mission? If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, flip to Ephesians. We're going to spend some time in Ephesians because God answers a lot of questions for us this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It answers both of these questions for us. Okay, some of them in this room, you have it memorized, don't you? You were forced to have it memorized by your beloved friend and pastor. It says this, guys, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Where was it, what was our mission before all this? Before we started doing this church thing, what was our mission? I'll tell you what my mission was. It was this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, Satan, that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. That's who I was. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Hey, you may say that doesn't apply to you. The Bible disagrees with you. That was all of our mission. And I think it's a good description. Our mission was the fulfillment of our desires, body and mind. We followed our flesh. We pursued what we wanted in our relationships, diets, education, sports, jobs, free time, you name it, everything was about how it served us. Whether it was in domination, all right, or whether it was in isolation and running away, we did whatever we could to protect and serve ourselves. But Romans six twenty one says this, and I agree. But what fruit were we getting at the time from those things which you are now ashamed? I tell you what, I tested God's warnings. I didn't get anything good out of them. Anybody else get something good? I didn't. I don't know anybody who has. All of his warnings turned out to be true. And that is exactly why many of us are here. We tested the warnings of God and found them to be true. For some of us took longer than others, right? Some of us are a little, we're gifted with stubbornness. But eventually we all arrived at the end of ourselves. Eventually we saw the deathly life that we were living. And then when we felt hopeless, someone shared the good news with us. That though we were dead slaves, verse 4, look at it. Look at it. But God, being rich in mercy, because because of the great love with which he loved you. Guys, God loves you. You came in with shame. You know this whole conversation, this whole time you felt shame. Hear this. God loves you. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, even when you were making those decisions, he loves you. And he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, listen, he's still got more for you. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift. From a loving God to you. You have nothing to boast in. Except to boast in the goodness and grace and kindness and love of Jesus Christ. I boast in it. Anybody else? Amen. Chet was losing his mind boasting in it this morning. So, what's the good news? After all that we did, guys, listen, and all that you still will do, God's rich mercy and love defeated death. It satisfied justice that you deserve. It gave you a new life. It adopted you into a family of God. It set you apart from sin. You are forgiven. And all this is through small faith that believes that he is king and that he is able. Do you believe he's king? Do you believe he's able? Man, he loves you, whether you believe it or not. And now we who believe and who have come alive together, uh, together through faith... Coming into the kingdom of God, we have verse 10. Look what verse 10 says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him. What does workmanship mean? It means that God is transforming us into little Jesuses, little Christs, Christians, Christ-like ones. We are being conformed into the image of Christ as we give ourselves over to the way of Christ in full devotion, Right? We're devoted to Him. I want to be like Him. And in our new mission, as we conform into Christ, trying to become like Him, we begin to do the things that Jesus does, the greatest of which is forgiveness of sins and the laying down of our own lives for the sake of others. Do you hear that? That means our mission has changed. We used to sacrifice and use others for our own selfish gain, including our spouses. But now we sacrifice ourselves that others might gain. What happened? Our world got turned upside down by grace. That's what happened, right? So it's only natural as a follower of Christ to then turn over to Ephesians 4, 32. Flip over. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Read it. This is not my word. This is God's word. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, which means to be soft, not hard-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Why does that matter? We'll flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Why does this matter? It matters in our marriage. It matters in every single relationship we have. But it matters because you know what Jesus did when He sacrificed His life, he saved us. You know what He did? He also He won Himself a bride, and that bride is the church. The gospel is tied to marriage. Look at this, wives, you sinful wives, submit to your own sinful husbands, as to the Lord. For the sinful husband is the head of the sinful wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also you sinful wives submit in everything to your sinful husbands. Be tenderhearted. Forgive them as Christ has forgiven you. It's the only reason why you have a relationship with Jesus. You go, well, what about the husbands? Okay, verse 25. You sinful husbands love your bride. Even when she sins. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Her is you, guys. It's the church. Having cleansed her by the washing of the word, or the water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their sinful wives as their own bodies You see what this is saying? Husbands, you're a representation of Jesus to your wife. You're a representation of Jesus and his love for the church. That's kind of, I'm like, hey, man, don't put that on me. That's a little too much. But that's the reality. And in following Jesus, it leads me to do the same thing, doesn't it? So what should we say and do considering all that we have just talked about? Two things. I believe the good message about what Jesus has done to pursue us gives us permission to fight for our marriages. I think that's what it gives us. It gives us permission to fight. To not run away. You're not alone. Regardless of what harm they've done to you, regardless of what is happening. Doesn't mean that you don't uh, actually physically separate in dangerous situations, but it is saying that we fight for it. So let me put it really simply. This is what I would say. Simply put, a fully devoted follower of Christ never pursues divorce. That you may disagree with, but I've given you my reason. A fully devoted follower of Christ doesn't do that. You may say, but doesn't Jesus say, except for sexual immorality, to which I would respond, did Jesus ever commend divorce? Did he ever promote it? Did he ever suggest it? Never in the entire Bible. Not once. In fact, the greatest story ever told is about God's constant pursuit of us, even though we run from him to idols. As Scripture says, whoring ourselves out to them. Well, An entire book of the Old Testament tells the story of a man named Hosea whose wife is a serial adulterer. It's an entire book. Go read it. It's wonderful. It's a great picture of you. And God commands Hosea to pursue her and love her as a representation of God's constant love and pursuit of you, of Israel. Now you might say, well, what about Jeremiah 3.8? Somebody in this room is thinking about it. What does Jeremiah 3.8 say? It says, well, God literally says, 'I uh, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Number one, that's God talking, not you. A sinless, perfect God. And number two, the love story of God still shows that he still woos his wayward bride back to himself and welcomes her home when she turns and repents. The greatest woo being the Messiah, who is the son of Abraham, the son of Israel, the son of David, the son of God, who died for his bride. So you go, yeah, you could have your permission. You could say that you got that. Oh, look, God did it. But are you ready to die? That's exactly what Jesus did. So like I said at the beginning of the message, many of you will listen to this sermon, not simply for theological information, but you'll be listening to hear, if I think God thinks your divorce was acceptable, and in doing so, I think that you are looking for the wrong thing, what the word shows us is that through Jesus, we have permission to fight for a marriage, and it will be hard, just as it was hard for Jesus to get you. It will take steadfastness just as it took steadfastness for Jesus to walk into Jerusalem, to hike across up Golgotha and to get nailed to it. Not all will receive your sacrificial love. Your spouse may not receive it. Just as billions on this earth don't receive Jesus. So to you who are walking through the the pain, the hellishness, of what it means to sacrificially love somebody in the midst of a broken marriage, let me read to you Hebrews twelve three, and hold fast to it. It says this: Consider him Jesus, who endured from sinners like us such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hey, don't get weary; your Savior's with you, and He doesn't give up. Hebrews two eighteen. Hold on to this. Says this: Some of you are you're, you are tempted right now to throw in the towel, to be done. You have friends who are tempted to throw in the towel. Hebrews 2.18, tell them this. For because he, Jesus himself, was tempted, or suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus wants to help you. You're not alone, he's with you. When you want to throw in the towel, God never throws in the towel on you. Praise God for that. Now, there's a lot of things I haven't said, so let me give you... It's some insight on what next week is going to be, all right? So you can determine now whether you're ever coming back. And this is what I'm going to talk about next week. Next week I'm going to talk about this. And i got one more thing to say because I think the gospel tells us one thing more. But next week we're going to talk about when the divorce was not permissible, any subsequent remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. I'm also going to talk about in situations where the divorce was permissible, remarriage is also permissible. We're going to talk about that. And lastly, next week, I'm going to talk about improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends are necessary. And following that one point, I want to tell you one more thing. Listen, the gospel provides forgiveness for your marriage mistakes. Hear me. Do not live and the weight of guilt. Satan wants you to be guilty, and he wants to hold you in the darkness with it. Now, if you feel convicted by the Spirit of God, that's a good thing. God's conviction is him wooing you back into a good way. And I'm telling you right now, if you confess and repent of your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. He's ready. You know why? Because he loves you like you've never loved a thing in your life. So I don't know your marriage situation. I got no judgment on you. But this is what it says about divorce. The thing, this is what I put forward to you is what the Bible says. But I tell you, man, God is gracious and he loves us. And if you're thinking, man, well, I've I got a divorce and it sounds like it wasn't biblical and I got a remarriage, which also sounds it wasn't biblical. Gosh, did God ever use my now marriage? And I want to tell you, God is always working in spite of sinners. Okay. He's always working in the spite of sinners. In my family and in my community group, in my friends, there are friends who, unbiblical divorce, unbiblical remarriage, and yet God is using them to do amazing things. We'll talk more about that next week and what it looks like. But I want you to know before you leave this place, God loves you. He's ready to forgive, confess, repent. And as we'll talk about next week, let's make amends like the church never has. Okay? We will be a city on a hill and we'll be salty if we do these things. Let me pray for you. Well, Father, I am so thankful that you are gracious. I am a adulterous sinner. I'm prone to look at women lustfully in my heart. which you say in Matthew chapter 5 is sexual immorality, which is the same word you use in Matthew 19. And on doing so, my wife has had a biblical grounds for a divorce for years. But I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives my wife and so many men and women in this room permission to fight for marriage, to fight for healing, fight for redemption. I'm a sinner, God, and I'm thankful you forgive me and love me and set me free from bondage. I'm thankful, God, for how you continue to bestow kindness and grace on us who have been divorced or been remarried or gone through these hardships, how your still kindness is still on us. And I pray you would continue to make it rain. And may you be glorified in all of our marriages, in all of our relationships. May we be a people who are constantly laying down our lives for others rather than seeking to use them to gain something for ourselves. Would you help us, Lord? We need your help. I pray for our community group leaders and community group shepherds who are helping to shepherd all these couples and these marriages. I pray you'd give them wisdom to help navigate the situations, the complexities of all these situations. But I pray for all the people in this room where there is hardness of heart like pharaohs. I pray you would soften it. And I pray that marriage would be something that is sanctified and wonderful and taken serious and outposts. And I pray that the Cody community would look at us and go, what in the world? You guys are different. And may they come to know you because they see the gospel in our marriages. I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen.